My name's Mark from Opening Up Cricket. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You're going to get out the game where you've been into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you yeah. regret that at oh, all? Yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. We don't like cricket, we love it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Man Marking Podcast. I'm Anthony Olsen. I'm joined by Danny Reid and Brian Fulford. How are we, fellas? Uh, yeah, I'm not bad. I'm sat on the other side of the table today. Quite literally, we're in the, in the back garden, two metres apart, I think. Uh, but you're in the hot seat today, Anton. Do you know what? It, it, it suits you well. You look good. That's been very, very kind of to say. I'm good as well. Got a solid cup of tea in front of me. Um, that was an excellent intro. Thanks, mate. Um, football's back this week. Um, we've had a couple of games now. We had a, an amazing, calamitous game with uh, Arsenal and Man City. David Luiz probably still trying to get over that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jamie Carragher doesn't like him, if you've seen that. No, I mean... From a man who literally leaned out of a car window and spat at somebody on camera, it's quite bold to suggest that David Luiz will never be seen again in the Premier League just for getting sent off, which Callaghan himself was quite good at doing as well. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of things that haven't been seen in the Premier League, we haven't had any fans. It's been a bit weird. We've had a bit of crowd noise pumped in. Um, So it led me to think, what would be the favourite chance of of yours in a ground, any sport, you know, what one would you go for? Brian, I'll let you go first. Because we're speaking to the guys from Open Cricket, I've gone with the Freddie Flintstop song, which is very long, so I can't sing it. You so can sing it. You definitely can sing it. I don't really know the words other than Freddie Flintstop, Freddie, Freddie Flintstop. And it's sang by a guy who looks like Gareth Southgate. That's part of Army Army. <laughs> and in the video, that's going to get Danny to find. He's dressed as the Queen. <laughs> so it's just like a brilliant <laughs> coming together of a fellow who looks like Gareth Southgate dressed as the Queen singing about Freddie Flintstone in terms of Britain's made for us yeah it's, it's very Brexit I love that <laughs> <laughs> we love oh how we love your Simbolic your Simbolic your six hitting your six hitting our all round man our all round man Uh, so I've gone for I've gone for an American champ and it's one that we've we've reminisced about a few times we found it on the internet Defense. well it's kind of down that route <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna tell it to you I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a rendition is what I'm gonna go oh, for wow. <laughs> silence in the studio come on Seattle <laughs> fight and win Come on, Seattle! Come on, Seattle! Fight and win! Fight and win! 
Which, which I think, and I mean, you two are much bigger fans of American sport than I am, but I think that kind of is a really nice picture of like what American sport, how different American sport is to British sport. That they find that that is acceptable to sing in a stadium. There's a video somewhere about comparing European songs to American, and they can't even sing You're Not Singing anymore. They sing <laughs> You're Not Singing Over There or something <laughs> like that. It's so bizarre. It's like, how did they make it all marching band every song that they do? It's all about the positivity. <laughs> Where's the positivity, lads? Yeah. <laughs> right, well, enough of that nonsense. Let's have a little look. Who we've got on the show today now. My name's Mark. I'm the founder of Open Up Cricket. And what Open Up Cricket has done since 2014 is promote mental well-being and suicide prevention through the sport. And we do this through going out to clubs and groups to deliver sessions on those themes, as well as campaigning on the internet and really just trying to find any way possible to make this a conversation topic. So Ryan. Why did you want to speak to Mark? I think it was just to come out of our comfort zone and come away from football and see what lessons we could learn from other sports. Uh, I think there's an ego that comes with football that we assume it's bigger and better than, than all we do the sports. But I think the size of football is, is both its strength and weakness. And, and speaking to Mark opened up our eyes from the fact that it's not about aimlessly throwing money and mental health, but actually caring and uh, doing things properly for the right reasons. Absolutely, and Danny, we have uh, your themes of every episode. What's, uh, what's today's theme? It's very exciting. This is my first go with the theme, so uh, hope I don't fuck it up. Um, but yeah, as Ryan said, our theme this week: what can football learn from other sports? Uh, you know, as we've just said, then football has a bit of an idea of itself of, of what it what it does and what it doesn't do, and we just wanted to have a little look at what can another sport that that operates in this country with mental health that we can learn from and you know speaking of learning from other sports i think i'm going to give you a bit of a test there have you learned anything about cricket i'm going to test your knowledge now do you know a lot about cricket um <clears throat> i know that you play it <laughs> and <laughs> yeah well that's hard, no, no, <laughs> that's hard. there was one incident that uh that, that Ant and i played cricket some years ago uh, in the, the nets at Colby Cricket Club um, on the Leisure Peninsula and I was wearing some form of they were like, um, like tongs, they? no they were like espadrilles weren't they and Bob threw an actual cricket ball as hard as he could and it hit me in the toe <laughs> that's my only experience of ever picking up a cricket bat never again right okay so I've got a little test for you there are 29 fielding positions on a, on a cricket pitch. I'm already bored. Oh. Can you <laughs> name... Hang on, let's see how many you can name. How uh, many of them do you think you can name? Wicketkeeper. No, 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 wait there. So you've got to guess how many you can name. Okay. No, no. There's no, no conferring. I want to I want to know your knowledge. So if Okay, you I'm going to go five. So you can name five. How many can you name? Can you name more five? No. <laughs> Are these 29 different individual with 29 different names? Yeah. No wonder it takes all day. It's unnecessary. <laughs> okay. okay uh, so Danny, name them five. Silly wicket. That's one, isn't it? No. Uh, <laughs> short leg. Short leg is one. Okay. Yeah, Outfield. No. Um, 
Night Watchman. <laughs> that is a thing, but it's not a field. <laughs> um, Michael Vaughan. <laughs> yeah, excellent. I think we've lost him here. So, right, let's get on with the, uh, with the interview then. Ryan gets a go. Okay. Right. Is Wicketkeeper one? Yeah, Wicketkeeper is one, right? Is, is the bowler technically yeah, one? Yeah, bowler's one. Oh, for fuck's sake. Is there something about slip, slip, something or yeah, other? Yeah, slip, Ryan C, yes. Yeah. Slip catcher. Yeah, slip catcher's one. Is it really? Yeah, genuinely, yeah. Make these sound like really shit superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just feel that. Mm, just Can help. you name all 29? No, we can't. Look at the yeah, yeah, we turned it on you. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Right. Wicketkeeper, bowler, first slip, second slip, third slip, gully, point, extra cover, cover, silly mid-off, mid-off, mid-on, long-on, long-off, uh, deep mid-wicket, square leg, short leg, leg gully, leg slip, Fine leg and off the top of my head, I can't think. You're about nine short. Tell and you what, also. I'll have to follow one to the seven dwarfs to try to get out of the way. Straight to DVD. Plus, the other thing is, he could have made every single one of them up and me and you would have been like, fucking impressive, that, you know? <laughs> There's more people on a cricket pitch than there is listening to us right now. Slip on, slip on, 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 uh, men and men's mental health and, and mental health within within football and sport more broadly. Could you give us an idea as to why you agreed to do a, an interview with Man Marken? Well, I like the concept. I think that it's important to use sport to, to have this conversation. And I think particularly with football, um, I'm interested when we talk now about where we, where we think the sport is in terms of the conversation around mental health, because in certain countries and in certain sports, it's it's moved on a great deal. And football being our most our biggest dominant sport in this country, I think it's crucial that that sport has a role to play as well. So that's what piqued my interest, uh, really, yeah. Could you just give us a bit more of a background and, and how it started and what it is you do? Yeah, sure. Well, um, Open at Cricket has been going since 2014, but the real origin of it goes back to... December of 2012, I play my cricket, or at least try to, at um, Sefton Park in South Liverpool. And uh, a friend of mine who I played with, a good friend, good teammate, um, unfortunately in at that time took his own life. So what Open Up Cricket has been is a, is a reaction to that. And as the year after Alex's death uh, transpired, I, I found myself thinking more and more that actually... As much as I wanted to do something to remember my friend, I also wanted to do something about, as much as I could, about what's a much broader issue in society around male suicide and also male mental health, but mental health in general and how we approach it, how we talk about it, or in, in a lot of cases, how we don't talk about it. So that was the aim. And then in the years that have gone by, it's largely been done through getting out to different clubs and groups. And there's been last count 211 different sessions with with clubs with groups with coaches anyone in the cricket community and that's been backed up more and more by working with people 
in different areas of the sport to try and keep the message going and to to filter it in so it's part of of what we do as as sports people no definitely that that's brilliant um i'd sorry it's in such sad circumstances but it seems to be quite a common theme we've had with people on the podcast who've had people maybe commit suicide family members and friends and they try and take that pain and, and do something positive with it and that seems to be what open up cricket is all about um what, what, what about your background then, Mark? Have you ever suffered from any mental health issues in the past or, or was dealing with the suicide of one of your close friends sort of the hardest part of your life? Well, um, it, it is the case that I'd also have had those very similar issues to Alex. Um, when I was finishing up at my university degree, 2007, I experienced my first episode of clinical depression, which left me in a, a, in a place in my life where I didn't want to, to live any longer. And rather than thinking about all that I had ahead, my graduation, work, getting married, kids, whatever would be in my future, I couldn't imagine any of that. And I was, my only thought, my recurring thought was just that, that, I, that I wanted to die and I didn't want to, to, to be on this earth any longer. Now, what happened then from 2007 all the way through, really, my, in my 20s was I had... Um, did a really good job of of pushing it away and trying not to face up to it so when Alex died once again I didn't really engage with it I I, then took me uh, another big uh, big profound episode of of depression in 2015 before I really started to engage with it from my own perspective so yeah I've always come at this from two perspectives one the loss of a friend but also the fact that over the years I've had recurrences of, of, of depression, which now I, I feel I've got the tools to be able to manage. I don't think, I think from my perspective, I don't know whether it's something that I can always insulate myself from. I don't know whether it will come back again, but I certainly know a lot more about how my mind works and what works for me and what doesn't to try and be more proactive. And being proactive is my, my big message when it comes to, to mental health. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And do you find being being more open with the situation is as led it to become slightly easier in dealing with it at all? Yeah, absolutely. I I found it like like anyone. I found it very difficult to articulate things that had only been in my head. So when I first went to the doctor, having experienced all of this, saying it out loud felt very very odd. I told maybe two or three people in my life up to that point, and that had always been when maybe I'd had had a lot to drink and it just felt a little bit easier in the circumstances. But from that point of first talking about it, it only ever got easier. And it's certainly not something I, I talk about, you know, in depth every day. I talk about body and mental health every day, but my own experience is something that I'll lean on when I, when I need to. And I, and I think it's all about picking the, the right person or the right people in the right circumstances, because there is so much ignorance out there that, it's hard for people to understand if you're talking about particular feelings, if they've not experienced it, it's hard to empathise. So it's always just trying to find ways of, of connecting with people over it. And if you or I can talk about our own experience, then there will be someone out there who hears it and thinks, oh, that's what's been going on in my life. And it might make it that bit easier for them to go forward and talk about it. No, I think that's a, a very, very important message, Mark. And it's something that sort of, we've discussed on this show a lot that 
we're not here to, to be medical experts or tell people what to do, but just by opening up that conversation uh, with people who maybe there could be someone's hero by being a sports icon, or it could just be someone like me, Dan or Ant, just an everyday person and, and you resonate with it and it makes a difference. Um, and we really appreciate all the work you've you've done on opening up cricket and, and for coming on the show as well. You've touched on in the past about links between physical health and exercise uh, with people's mental health. Do you think that link is slightly underappreciated, both positively and negatively? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that it's something which is so simple that often there can be a lurch towards trying to think that there's something more uh, involved that people need to know. So for me, it's always been based on what I've researched, based on who I've spoken to, both clinically as well as in, in sport. The, the benefits of physical activity for good mental health are, are so, so much, so, so um visible in what we do even just down to the simplicity of the fact that once we've exercised we have chemicals released from our brains which make us feel good but also linked to you know self-esteem target setting you know achieving goals also the connection that you'd have with team sports like football and cricket so rather than maybe going straight in with people and telling them about some further things they can do everyone has an appreciation that physical activity is good for their their health it's just widening that out to say it's good for all of your health not just physical but mental as well yeah and i guess those two things uh, go hand in hand as well don't think that the better physical health you're in the more likely your mental health will be will be intact as well but um and equally on the other end just because you're a fit and healthy person it doesn't mean you'll have great mental health as well uh, but i really get on board with what you're saying and i think the team element can be a big game changer too just feeling like you're a part of something and what you find is um, we had someone on the show the other day called Dan Parnell who is a lecturer at Liverpool University and he said one of the main reasons he gets his son to join the football team is just to make friends that he'll have for life because he remembers the lads he played up uh, played football with growing up and I think that that's really important aspect to have someone you see might just be training in the week or playing on Saturday or Sunday. It doesn't have to be at a particularly high level, but just that camaraderie in that dressing room can make a, a great difference to somebody's uh, mental health. Do you think there is an issue with professional sports people pushing their physical health potentially too far? Yeah, I think there's, there certainly can be an element of that. I think whatever we advocate whatever we recognise as being good for something can always then be taken that little bit too far. Yeah. So you know, I know from experience of speaking to professional cricket players that they can become uh, fairly obsessive about their physical routines and, and, and wanting to be in a particular physical shape. And that can sometimes be the result of, of a number of things that are going on. So people flogging themselves to be physically fitter or physically active um, can be an issue um, and I think we we look at that old thing that probably people's grand used to say with everything in moderation so if we're looking to say physical activity is a part of a good healthy lifestyle we recognize that you've got to know when to stop so some signs that people may be maybe struggling or, or maybe having difficulties is if they are hammering anything too much whether that be physical exercise or whether that be something which doesn't appear to be as helpful yeah, and I think as well, the aspect of maybe when when somebody gets injured, um, 
and they may be in great physical condition most of their life and then there's something out of the hands where they, they may miss a final or a World Cup or whatever it may be. Speaking to um, professional cricketers, have you ever found um, that most of the struggles are when they're not playing as well? Yeah, that's a big thing. And that can be not playing during their career or it can be after they yeah. retired because for pro sports people, just like any of us, we've got this identity that we have, whether that be you re you regard yourself as being, for example, a father or a lawyer or a teacher or whatever job you do. For these people, it will be they consider themselves in their career as being a footballer or a cricketer. And then when that ends, quite suddenly, in a lot of cases, it can be very difficult to try and adjust to life where you're an ex-footballer, an ex-cricketer, and just yeah. in that path towards it. So that's after the career. But in the career as well, definitely, if you're judging yourself by how well you're doing it in sport and you're not playing and you're, you're observing, you're still part of the squad, but if you're not on the pitch, it can be really difficult. So a lot of it's tied up in that, I think. And basically, my experience of, of cricket was a little bit different to and, and cricket and football is a little bit different to, to the other lads in the here and um i just wanted to to show them how, that crossover that because cricket's quite a mental challenge it's a it's a team sport played by individuals really um yeah. when you get out into the middle and you're 22 yards away from your nearest mate surrounded by a load of people from the m62 corridor who don't really like you that much it can be quite a lonely place um so one of the things we've also discussed on the show is is um you know the the changing room environment uh, of football so i just wanted to see if if you'd ever felt like uh, the changing room environment in cricket was completely different or whether there were similarities to that mm. i think the big difference would be the amount of time that cricketers spend with each other compared to footballers so if i can remember back this is a long time back for when i used to play football Typically, you get there, oh, I don't know, depends how serious you take it. But you get there, you know, half an hour before the game, you'd have your game, you'd have a shower, you might go and have a drink, you might have something to eat, depends on what the group's like. But it could be over the whole experience in probably three, four hours. Whereas with cricket, you're playing on, uh, playing league cricket on a Saturday, you're, you're more than likely meeting at 11 o'clock, you're then playing the whole day. You might have a bit of a journey there and back. So it might be you're out of the house quite conceivably with cricket from 10 to 10. So what cricket has, perhaps um, in, in different to, a, to most of the sports, is that there's the ability there to have a really, really tight bond with people that you share a dressing room with. As much time with them as you would do people um, in, in your family. So that can be good it can be really supportive it can be one where people just think everything's clicking that's why we do it also if it's not a good environment then that's a lot of time to, to put up with it and that's you know maybe why we see a lot of players in the game where it's hard to dedicate so much time to it and then if it's not a good environment then why do I so the dressing room environment in that sense is different but i think the principles of the the environments uh, are the same across the two sports and indeed any others that it is supposed to be supported. And as much as we spend time uh, making fun of each other and having a laugh, I think at the root of it, it has to be something where people look around and think, in the game, these guys are on my back. And if I needed some support for them out of the game, then I could probably rely on them as well. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. You know, I think that is where a team works best and and it works best on the pitch as well when they feel valued outside of the game. You know, if they can go and talk to their mates who are in the changing room outside of that game, if they've got more in common, I think that that makes a complete difference to results and performances. Um, but you touched upon like the bond and how strong a bond can be. And something that we spoke about on, on the show before was how it can be quite tough for young people in football to get involved in that change room um, environment. Um, do you think it's quite tough at the moment? I mean, we probably come from a couple of different eras of of cricket, um, so it'd be quite interesting to know whether your experience young when you were younger playing cricket was quite tough when you go into those adult dressing rooms at quite an early age. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, some of the people that I grew up playing with are, are lifelong friends, people who are quite a bit older than me, but who I've always kept in touch with, even though I don't live in the area any longer. But um, yeah, I, I played my first senior game when I was, when I was 12. And that was difficult going into a room full of men when I was just a boy and the conversation being way above my head. And as much as people did try to make me me feel welcome, it was still something where I didn't really feel connected with them. It's only then years, as years went on, when I could in, engage in the socialising a little bit more. And I suppose when we say socialising, that's a term which we use to describe drinking. But, <laughs> but what, I, what I found with that was... By having that little bit more of a connection and being able to uh, to socialise just outside of the immediate cricket, found that you, you find things in common with people and you might have an interest outside of the sport which was there. But going into it straight away, you're an addition to the environment. So there'll be people who maybe played at the same club for, for de- a couple of decades and they would consider that changing room to be to be theirs and they're not necessarily although they can be they're not necessarily hostile to someone but they just their default is that that's where they are they're comfortable they might have their particular spot where they sit and different routines so someone coming into that is going to challenge that a little bit so i think as time goes on it it, it gets easier but for young people coming into a Cricket changing room. I think it might be easier than football, though, because you have those opportunities in a day of cricket to be able to have a chat with people. It's not just about getting changed from your, your normal clothes into your, your sports gear. You then would have opportunities when you're watching your team back at tea um, in the field. Whereas in football, it could just be in, you're out, you're getting changed, there's a bit of banter and it passes you by. So I think cricket with a time element, and I always try to think about it positively, a time element in it can be good. Also, like we've said, if it's not a, a good place to be, then the time element can really exaggerate some of the difficulties. Yeah, I think that time element's a, a difficult one as well when you've got you know, family and, uh, and girlfriends yeah. and they don't really understand why this game goes on for about eight hours and never finishes and you only draw as well. So yeah. <laughs> that's always pretty tough to explain. Um, when we were we were talking uh, the other week with a couple of ex footballers and ex people in the in the football game, and there's been uh, kind of uh, more of and a raft of people coming out and explaining that they've had mental health issues and 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 the like. And I know personally that there's been plenty of cricketers who come out. You know, you look at Steve Harmison, one of the most high profile uh, to have done it, and Freddie Flintoff as well. Um, 
does cricket as an industry have much in place to help players with their mental health? It, it does, yeah. For the professional players, I would say that the PCA, the Professional Cricketers Association, the equivalent of their, their professional body there, a bit like a trade union, but it's the, the players' um, group that the, they're all members of. I, I would go as far to say that the work that they do is, is world-leading in terms of what they provide for their athletes. They have um, a suite of things that they provide to them from academy stage, so before they're professionals, throughout their playing career, and crucially, even when they're no longer contracted to a county. I've done some work with them and, and know a lot of the, uh, the development managers there who work with the different counties and players, and they'll have contact with people who've long since retired but still have the ability to, to tap into the resources they have. And one of their pillars that they base their work on is on welfare. And within welfare, we have, of course, mental health and other things around um, providing them with education around um, the dangers of gambling, alcohol, drugs, or anything you can think of. So they have that available to them. And they do really brilliant work, which I think other sports might look at and think, is it possible for them to replicate it in some way, shape or form? You certainly, I mean, I'm looking at this from, as a bit of an outsider, really. I do follow football, certainly not as much as I used to. And I would look at a sport like football and think, with all the money that's there, they must be able to have something which is comparable to what PCA provide in cricket. And cricket being a kind of mid-tier sport in terms of the, the money that comes into it. They provide an extraordinary amount for their players. Now, of course, it is up to the players to a large extent to, to, to want to access it. The PDMs who work with them, they have three counties that they look after. And within that, they'll, they'll speak to each of the players. But like we all know, there will be people who, who, have, who have issues, who have problems, who are determined to fix it on their own and maybe won't reach out for that help. But as far as I've seen, and I've looked at, uh, looked at other sports, I've looked across the, the, the countries in the in, in cricket and in other sports. And I think what they offer for them, what they provide is absolutely first class um, and it is a beacon for other sports. That's really interesting. And you mentioned there though the, the difference between maybe the professional side of the game. Um, I've played, well, I've tried to play cricket for many years since I was about 11. Um, and there have been times when it's been really difficult, you know, to get yourself up and go and play for eight hours when you don't really want to or you're not in the quite the right mindset. And I've seen many first team players, you know, come in being paid a little bit of money to play. Do you think there's um, more pressure on the amateur side of cricket than there is in any other sports? So if we think of a comparison between football and cricket, that blurring between what is amateur and what's professional, we got this, this sort of in football, maybe it's a bit easy to see where semi-professional teams are in. There's also an element within cricket, because it's so statistics-driven, that can be something which people latch onto and that can be something which could cause, um, or at least exaggerate uh, some negative thoughts within that. And I think it was Graham Fowler that described cricket as a game based on failure. And even you look at the greats in the sport, the great batsmen of all time, even Donald Bradman, you know, they will get a low score more often than they get a big one. So there is that element to it, definitely. What I've always tried to advocate is that with those pressures that exist and with the potential pitfalls, 
we've got to be able to look at it and say, how can we turn that into a strength? So yeah, there's, there's definitely pressures out there. It's just, I suppose, part of our mission is to try and help people develop the tools so that they can deal with them better and, and rather than just deal with it, actually be able to thrive. And do you think the, the, the pressures, uh, they can be like issues with like masculinity at all? You know, in a changing room, it can be quite like ego central at times. It can be really good. That can bring out a lot of characters in, in the teams. But it, there are sometimes, you know, going up and down the teams, getting dropped to a, a different level maybe, or maybe not being used as much. There's nothing worse than fielding fine leg to fine leg uh, for eight hours of the day. Um, do you think a lot of those pressures can be issues with masculinity within the game? Yeah, and, and again, like we said before, it can be about what people's identity is or how they identify. So they're saying, you know, I'm going into this game and I'm a bowler who, who who's able to be tight and not go for many runs. And then suddenly, in the space of an over, they've been fetching a ball out of the road. That can be a jolt to someone and think, well, hang on, that's not meant to happen. I'm not, that's not the outcome I wanted. And that's the big thing, I think, whether it be with masculinity or, or otherwise, in terms of mental health, is a lot, of our dis a lot of our disappointment and our struggles can be based around getting a different outcome to the one we desired. And particularly with men, um, we, can, we can see where we're projecting things and we're maybe hyping things up and we want things to go a certain way because we don't want to be diminished in any way. We want to be showing that we're just as strong as anyone else. And then a sport or anything else outcomes can maybe make can shift that and you could say well you know if i'm a batsman and i'm going to be going out there and dominating the attack and then i'm getting put my ass by a quick bowler what does that mean you know how am i dealing with that can i get up and just say oh i think that's one of those things or is that something which then i'm going to be i'm going to respond to uh, aggressively anything like that so it's definitely that sport has the ability to go both ways to, to reinforce things positively or negatively someone's not quite in the right the right frame of mind it can it can make things worse i think that's definitely true absolutely yeah and you know i've been in that situation when you run up you well say slowly run up and uh, you deliver a ball and get it knocked back over the, your head to the tennis court to coldy so you know that's pretty <laughs> difficult to deal with um just talking more generally about like maybe from a fan's perspective um I don't know if this is, is quite right because I've been on a, a couple of, you know, on social media, I've seen it a little bit. Um, with football, you know, you tend to get that ugly side of the game where people are very aggressive and very unhappy and it almost seems like they don't actually like football, they just want to go and vent some anger. Um, I, I think cricket doesn't really have that same problem of tribalism and aggression. Do you think there's a reason why cricket doesn't have as much of a problem yeah that's a really good question and i see it definitely in football i think there's a few reasons why i, I don't follow football as much as i used to I, when i was 17 18 i used to follow coventry city everywhere you know wherever they played home and away i, I was there um then a few, you know over the years i've moved away and so on and so forth but yeah i'd noticed definitely i think with you know social media you see how people maybe in some ways dislike another team more than they like their team or football. It's quite perverse, really. In terms of cricket, I don't think there's the connections in, in the same way. Most people, if they follow a, a county team, 
it's it's a fairly casual relationship. Of course, we've got like Yorkshire and Lancashire, and when they play each other, that's that's quite spicy. But even within that, there, there seems to be a good humour to it. There's the ashes, and yeah, we all have a laugh about Australians, but we still have the ability to, to clap them if they score 100 or there's a particularly good piece of fielding. So I don't know what it is, and I suppose we could get someone who's got a PhD in sociology to kind of unpack this, but cricket, just the same as rugby, say rugby league or rugby union um, at the club level doesn't seem to have the level of intensity amongst the fans. Um, and, and I think maybe the time, like that thing we said before, the time thing with cricket might be something to do with it. You can't get too wound up because you've got another few hours of it. <laughs> it's so compacted. There might be something in that. And I remember reading actually a little, little while ago that someone was defending, defending football against rugby as if it was some kind of contest saying, well, in rugby, of course, you get that, that satisfaction, whether you're playing or watching, of the real physicality of it. So if you feel aggrieved by something, very quickly there can be a particularly good tackle where you think, yeah, well, that's kind of done it for me. Whereas in football, the game becoming less and, you know, you're not, you can barely tackle compared to what you used to be able to. Maybe there's something in that. But but I suppose from a cricket perspective, from where I'm coming from, it's just, it's generally had its basis and you watch it I think, I might be wrong, from a perspective that you're there to see the talent on show. And if your team can win, that's great. But you can walk away from the ground saying, you're say, a Lancashire fan and you've lost. I watched one last year, Lancashire against Leicestershire. Um, Naby for Leicester hit this unbelievable knock to win the game. And people are leaving the ground going, do you know what, that was just great to watch. Don't yeah. know that really happens in football, does it? No, it doesn't. You, you don't really, I mean, you go and see these, these teams of, of footballers who are amazing. I mean, Tommy played Man United the other month and I was just more annoyed that we were losing 6-0. I wasn't going, oh, isn't Harry Maguire really good? I didn't even focus on them. I, I wasn't bothered. I was just looking at the scoreline going, that's embarrassing. Mm. And that was my first overriding force. It, it was more just embarrassment. Whereas I've watched England play. Do you remember the, the T20 with Ben Stokes at the end where he got, got yeah, like yeah. four sixes? As gutted as I was to hit four sixes in the last over to win a World Cup was unbelievable. Like, <laughs> yeah, I remember the same one, and I use that as an example as well. And just to say, you know, I was watching that as an England fan, I was disappointed England lost, but I remember looking at uh, Brathwaite, the guy who hit those sixes, thinking, Wow, I want to know more about him. Yeah, I mean, the way he hit them sixes as well, massive, massive man to, to just. I mean, it wasn't like slow bowling or anything. Ben Stokes is one of the best cricketers in the world and probably one of the the role models I think a lot of kids are looking up to now who's someone who's gone through a lot of personal trouble and had a, his life sort of open to the public for mm. one reason or another. And watching that happen was just unbelievable almost. When I was, uh, I w- I was having a look through your Twitter, I noticed that your, your pinned tweet is a story about a, a guy called Andy Gordon who spoke about how he ignored um, stomach pains for, for a period of time before he eventually went to the doctors and, and was diagnosed with, with terminal cancer. And he, he unfortunately died in, in 2015. And I think he described why he did it as always being a typical man, I think was what he said. And in doing some research for, for the podcast, some of the statistics around this type of stuff are quite extraordinary in terms of how poor men are in engaging with their health. Do you think there's a, there's, there's a reason why men are so bad at engaging with their own health, both physically and mentally. 
Mm, I think, yeah. I mean, in terms of Andy, just to say, Andy was a was a great supporter of Open Up Cricket, a fantastic lad and, and someone who went through the stages of his terminal cancer with the with a level of dignity that was extraordinary. And he's still someone that I, I look on as, a, as an inspiration in terms of how he, he, he handled himself. But from speaking to him, and of course that article that's pinned there, he tapped into some of these things about why men don't seek help and why we we we, we tend to think that we've all we've got all the tools to to solve a problem, which to an extent is a really good attitude to have to think that you're able to fix things and that you've got some agency to be able to do that. But in the case of what happened to Andy, in the case of of lots of other things, it's just so much so obvious that. We, it would be better to check something out, to show a little bit of vulnerability, to get some assistance, to, to get back to normal. So I think it's such a, a complex and varied field about why it is that as men, we tend to to either ignore things or we, we go out of our way to to not, in, not engage with them. And I think that some of it must come from the fact that we feel as a, as a gender that we we should be able to do it. Maybe it goes back to, you know, traditional roles of a male and so on. And I've thought about that a lot and I've read a lot about it. And, and I've really come to the conclusion that it's, it can be a real fear of, of exposing ourselves as not being the, 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 the proper man that we should be. And what we get less and less so now, you don't hear phrases as much like you used to, like someone should man up or take it like a man, or be more of a man, and all these kind of things. Of course, you still do hear them. It's not as common a thing to say, because finally people are realising that actually being a man or being a woman isn't necessarily the issue. It's about being a, a, a person and being able to, to, to find a way to, to keep going. So some of that stigma, and I hate that word stigma, I don't know why I've just used it, but I think some of the stuff that's been around it has been because people feel like they have to act in a certain way. And what we've really got to try to do is give people the permission, make it explicit that seeking help is not a weakness. It's in fact a strength. It's much more, it's much more difficult. If I think back to my experience, it's much more difficult to go to the doctor or to speak to someone about how you're feeling than it is to not. You know, lying, for me, sitting on the sofa, not going to the doctor was pretty easy. I, I could do that. I was pretty skilled in that. The move to walk down the road, to go to the doctor, to sit in the waiting room and then talk to a stranger about things in my head was difficult. But from there, I was able to get help to, to be better. So I always try to get that bit across people saying, you know, this, we need to think about it in a different way because it's not worked, has it, for so many people that we try and muddle through on our own. So maybe we need to look at it from a different perspective and say the real strength is in getting help and getting support. And it's not about someone holding your hand or whatever term you use for your whole life. It could just be in an instant to get a bit of support that then gets you back on the right track. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, the Ant and Ryan both know, but I had a, a, a health problem that I, that I was kind of dealing with last year that wasn't, anything thankfully in the end wasn't anything too severe but it did involve me having two operations and 
it was something that had been going on for a while and it kind of peaked and trough and it got to a point where it was unbearable so that was the reason that prompted me to go to to my gp and get it sorted and it was quite a uh, you know, I won't go into detail and don't want to put people off their dinner or their breakfast, whatever they're eating. Um, but it it involved quite an invasive piece of surgery. And my approach to it in the end was to just be open with them and spoke to all of my mates about it. And, and I got, you know, after the, are you actually all right? Is everything going to be okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely sound. Then I got the, the piss ripped out of me, which was absolutely fine. Um, and that kind of broke that awkwardness around it. And, and, and I would like to think that it was hopefully encourage the other lads that if they were in a similar situation they'd go well well danny went down and everyone else went down with him so i don't know why i wouldn't go down so i think you know for me i'd, I'd like to think that as i say i've had an experience of just you know what let's just be honest about it. it's not the worst thing in the world and people generally react pretty well to it if they cared about you yeah completely agree with that i think as much as it's great to hear from uh, high profile people talking about how they've sought help and dealt with things in a group of mates someone being an advocate and putting a hand up and saying right this is what i'm going through just letting them know then it has the ripple effect that someone else in the group like you say will think actually it's fine the world didn't blow up because someone talked about how they're feeling or a problem they have or a vulnerability we just they were just able to get help with it right tick that off and move on just wanted to pick up on something you said there, Mark. What you said that you you don't like the word stigma. Um, what's the is there a specific reason for that? Just oh, not, yeah, not I don't know why. Not particularly. I just I think a lot of what we tend to, to we do get a lot of, of stuff where people would say there's a stigma around this, there's a stigma around that. And I think when something gets labelled as having a stigma, we then automatically think, all oh, right, that there is a stigma. I mean, this is a problem. Whereas mm. I. I would just, and this is just me being being daft, really. I think that if we just say, if we don't keep talking about there being a stigma over something, then it might be that that might that's a step towards us moving away from it. If if that makes sense, that's just yeah. a, a personal thing that, that I've had over a little bit of time. But that's me being grumpy as well. No, I I I, I think that makes sense. It almost becomes like a self fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you if you keep saying something's true, then then everyone will think it's true rather than just sort of saying it isn't. Um, So uh, one of the other things we we were, we were looking at was, I think you wrote something about how a lot of people's kind of experience with with mental illness is that it almost comes out of nowhere. And that kind of surprise by it can leave people feeling quite sort of scared and and, and intimidated. And and maybe that's why they don't interact with it so much. Do you Mm. think, and I'm going to not use the word stigma, do you think one of the biggest barriers for a lot of people is just removing that maybe like that taboo and haven't been able to open up that conversation a bit more? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the, the basics are, are what make the difference, I think. That if we understand our own mental health and how our minds work a little bit more, then the experience of it being a real shock is, is perhaps not as, as severe because you might notice things coming a bit more. I, I speak to loads of people who say, once they've understood a little bit more about triggers and signs of it, they see something coming a bit a bit earlier and then realise they can get some help before it gets to the really the real worst bit. Um, but, of course, part of that is going to be feeling like it's it's fine to, to talk about it. And this isn't necessarily talking about it to everyone, but like in your example, talking about it with a group of close friends who you would trust with lots of things. And this is just another thing to be to be part of that bond 
but yes, the, the, the silence that is almost the default in this is challenging in terms of getting people to feel like they can, they can talk about it. And talking on every different level is what makes the difference, whether that's getting some mental health support, something from a clinician, from a doctor, or just talking about it, getting off your chest with your mates, or talking about something positively as a routine or a technique that you can use to improve your mental health. It all comes from, from communication. There's no way around it. I suppose, kind of drawing on that, do you think a lot of it is maybe people need to almost pay their mental well-being a little bit more respect? Because people obviously give a lot more, you know, credence to their physical health. Do you think people are now becoming more aware of, you know, taking care of their mental health, you know, with as much respect? Yeah, they, and, and they certainly should be. I, I think... Whether we choose to do it or not, we're pretty aware in society about what's good and what's bad for our physical health. So we know too much of this, not enough of that isn't isn't good. I wonder and I whether that it's the case uh, how sorry of how many people in, in society are aware of what's good and what's bad for their, their mental health. And it's really worth having a bit of a, a think and reflection about what may even just what makes you feel good, what makes you feel stressed, what you can do to relieve that. We've got a big thing in in, in British culture, of course, around alcohol, and I'm never going to lecture anyone on alcohol because between the years, between the ages of 16 and 32, it was my favourite hobby. It's what I spent the most money on. Absolutely loved it. Got a list of 100 stories of stupid things I've done, and that you know that's a top 100. There's a, there's 500. I can make a book out of it. But I realised after in time that one of the common denominators about having a, a dip in my mental health was linked to to alcohol. And then the more reading I did, I was like, flipping it, how come I didn't engage with this earlier? It's, it's clear this was this is an issue for me. So I've not I've not, I've stopped drinking alcohol, and that is difficult, and, and we could, you know, need to go into every bit of that. But for me, that has given me something of right, I know how to look after my mental health. I've got a stake in it, rather than it just being something that happens to me. Yeah. I have influence. Making sure that you're not a passive participant in it, that you, you're active in, in, in engaging with it. It's interesting yeah. that you say that about alcohol, Mark, because I literally had almost the exact same realisation and maybe about six to nine months ago. Um, I'm probably in a similar boat to you from, from the ages of maybe 14 to now. I've been, a lot of what I've done is involved drinking. And to be honest with you, a lot of the best times I've had, and with Ant and Ryan particularly, have been when we've been out on you know on the beers and what have you with the lads. Yeah. And I, I came to realise that, that, you know, if I went out on a big session on the, the Friday or the Saturday, it comes to the Monday, the Tuesday, the Wednesday, and I'd feel horrendous. And again, it took me a while to kind of put two and two together. And then I've I've subsequently had that balancing of, well, I really like going out of an evening and, and, and having a drink with the lads and all the rest of it, but I don't want to feel like that. So it's just engaging with it and making sure that yeah. you're... You, you know you limit it as much as possible um whether or not i'm being successful or not at that at the moment is probably still up for debate but i think as you say is if you're kind of engaging with it, it it can always be of assistance um obviously at the moment we're we're in a bit of a strange time um and i think one of the things that people are sort of talking about quite a lot is how are people's how's people's mental health being affected by being on lockdown and, and being restricted on what we can do and who we can see what sort of things are you doing to kind of you know keep yourself ticking over and make sure that you know it doesn't get on top of you yeah the big thing for me so far has been routine and trying just to give myself as many things that i can 
control because a lot of anxiety um, that I'll have or, or lurches towards depression will be about when I get really fixated on things I can't control and that will inform a view of the world or my, or my own circumstances that's very negative. So I've been trying to have a routine, plan my day out, just to, to, to put things in place where I know that it's full of things that are good for me and trying to use this time as an opportunity to maybe do the things that I might have put off and do some more reading and try and get my exercise in um, where I can be a bit more creative. But I think it is tough and I'm missing the connection with people, the physical connection as great as smartphones are with social media. It's not the same. So I think just having that routine and just giving myself as much ownership of what I can control and say, right, well, by the end of this day, there might be other things that go on. But if I can limit maybe not watching the news all the time or I can make sure I do some uh, some mindfulness, I can make sure I eat well, those different things, then I, I'll finish the day thinking, well, OK, you know, I've got through that and I'm ready to go tomorrow. So welcome back. I've still got Danny and Ryan with me, uh, unfortunately for me. Um, it's a dig. <laughs> Right, lads, what did we take away from that? Danny, I'll start with you. Um, quite a few things, really. One thing that I thought was quite interesting, which which goes back to one of the other conversations that we had earlier in the in the first series, actually, which was with Carl Anker, was he was talking about how guys need to make an effort to kind of socialise outside of the natural social environments that they meet each other in. So I think the basis of the conversation with Carl was around if you're mates with someone because you go to the match with them, then find somewhere else other than the match to go with them and find environments that other people feel comfortable. So don't always involve alcohol because that's a natural go-to for lads. And I think Mark was talking about how because in cricket, and you've attested to this before, there's a lot of a bit of a drinking culture in terms of after the match, isn't it? If you're the shittest player or the best player you have to buy a massive jug of ale or something uh, yeah so if you uh, say you get zero runs if you're the first duck in the game you have to collect a team there's a duck involved yeah <laughs> there's a duck involved if you get five wickets it's a jug you get 50 runs it's a jug if you get 100 runs it's two jugs because it's two fifties uh, yeah, it can get very expensive yeah. if you're good at it, which is why I've obviously stayed terrible yeah at it. <laughs> probably why I didn't play it <laughs> successful um, but yeah, I thought that was a really interesting thing that Mark talked about and something that I think the three of us, certainly, I mean, we all, as we've mentioned before, met because we played on the same football team and because we go to the match together and a lot of the times that we've spent together outside of doing this podcast have been in environments where we've been drinking just because naturally it goes, should we go to the pub for a drink, should we go out for a drink, should we go there and have a drink? And I think it's important to find environments where maybe you're not doing that because there are people that will be in your friend's circle who maybe not feel comfortable in that environment or in your team or what have you. And they might not feel comfortable going out for a drink, which means they may not involve themselves. And I know that's certainly something that we've spoken about before. And it can be very easy to just slip into a routine of going to the pub and going out and getting smashed. Maybe go and do something that's different than, than doing that, even if it's just, should we all just go to the park for a kickabout, which is what we've been doing during this lockdown, which I think has actually been really nice for the three of us just standing 40 yards apart and belting the ball at each other as hard as we can. Yeah, it's been fun. It's not been great when I've realised I'm out of breath after we've kicked the ball twice. <laughs> uh, Ryan, how did you find that interview? What did you take away from yeah, it? Yeah, I thought it was really good, mate. Just to follow up from what Danny said, um, I, I kind of liked how he described his relationship with alcohol. He kind of said it was the best days of my life. He's not going to regret drinking, but he realised it was having an effect on him. 
So he did something about it. I think he said, I've got an influence and a stake in my own mental health um, and I can relate it back to alcohol. And I think that's quite a healthy way of looking at it and saying that if I do drink, which I don't think he really does anymore, that I know I will feel bad, but that's fine. It's a decision I've made. I've just got to accept that. Um, and he also said, which I thought was really good, um, make it explicit that seeking help is a strength, not a weakness, which I think is very relatable to a lot of men. Uh, Danny touched on in the podcast, it took him a little while till the pain was unbearable to go to the doctors. Um, he said he had a friend who was at his pin suite. Um, yeah. The story there yeah, was, I, yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think it's, it's probably worth mentioning that obviously this week has been Men's Health Week. And... Um, some of the statistics of which we put some stuff out on, on Twitter about in terms of uh, men are 14% more likely to get cancer than women and 37% more likely to die than women. And that's purely, in a lot of ways, because men are so bad at engaging with their own health, both yeah. mental and physical. And his sort of advice to that, I think you asked the man to, uh, what can men do better? He said, because we think we're beyond help and we can fix everything. Speaking up for us, like we're exposing ourselves to things we can't fix. Mm. And I think it's just about flipping your mentality to saying, well, you can't fix it, someone else might be able to. So, as Danny's just touched on it, sometimes it's a matter of life or death. I'm not trying to be over the top. It can be a feeling in your stomach or a feeling in your head or wherever it may be. Six months down the line, it's more than a feeling. It's, it's, a, death, it's a death sentence. So, Seek help and see it as a strength, not a weakness. I think that would be my biggest takeaway from what you said. Absolutely, yeah. I think you I think you're both spot on there. Um, we spoke earlier as well, and just going back to the actual sport of cricket, we spoke about David Louise in football yeah. and a bit of a mare the other night. And, and whilst it's quite funny to, to see a few things being said, yeah. you know, obviously it's quite difficult. I imagine it's quite difficult for him at the moment. But he's used to it, isn't he? <laughs> but. Mark also talked about how cricket was this game based on failure, and it actually comes from a, a, a guy called Graham Flowers. Graham Flowers sorry. Can you explain that? Because I have to admit, at the time, I don't think I think I kind of just was like, right, I get what you got. And then when listening to it back before we were there today, I wasn't hundred percent following the dynamics. Of that that's probably just because I don't really know anything about cricket. Yeah, so the way Fowler explains it is that you basically got. Nine times out of ten, his job as a batsman is to go out and make runs. But nine times out of ten, he won't achieve that target, and he'll be judged right. on those nine times more than the, more than the one. And it's a thing that I think has been creeping into football, particularly with David Luiz. You forget that he was actually a, a really good footballer. Yeah. It's something that comes up with the likes of Gerard and, and people who haven't won titles and won enough. It comes back to their failures. Oh, we all remember this bit because it's really easy to remember. Right, I get you. So, that's so is it like in cricket, you, you you might have a someone who's been like amazing, mm-hmm. but you remember the time that they got a duck in the in the ashes because it's quite startling to see that happen. We had him with Chris Illuma, his miss at yeah. Scotland. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. and Chris Illuma's a good footballer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he played at international level. He played in the Premier League. And yeah, I think Gerard's a really good example of it, I think, that... You think of the, the career that Gerard had, and I, and I mean, for anybody who's not from Merseyside, I don't think you can overemphasise the impact that he had on this region in terms of, and I don't know if it was the same for you lads, every time you turn up on a Saturday or a Sunday to play football, there was half the team on both sides would be wearing ankle tape because Gerard wore ankle tape and red and black predators because Gerard wore them. 
and he's like a cultural phenomenon in especially in Liverpool. And he's probably one of the only players that's played for Liverpool that is quite well respected by Everton fans as well, just because of the type of player that he was and what he achieved. And all and of that seems towards him is fake and it's anger. Yeah, because it's respect so in it. Yeah. Um, but he's remembered for that slip against Chelsea by so exactly. many people, and it's embarrassing. Yeah, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Sky Sports was showing it recently um, when you talked about winning the title. That came up, and it was kind of like I think it's been a problem in this country for years why the international team hasn't done as well because we've always ridiculed Rooney, Beckham, Gerrard, unhealthy relationship with one individual within a team sport. Building them up to knock them down, isn't it? Which you've yeah. said a couple of times. The other thing as well is, particularly that Gerrard incident. He only falls over in that position because he's brave enough to go and get the ball in that position. He's the deepest player in the team. And you think he spent most of his career basically in attacking midfield there. He's adapted his game. And people can say, oh, he wasn't that good sitting in front of the back four. Well, the team that he was sitting in front of the back four for was top of the league and probably would have won the title that year were for it not another, you know, a couple of different slip-ups, non-intended. But we just... Throw it back to that. This is ridiculous. Yeah, and I think that's kind of kind of where that that comes from. That game based on failure. And I think it, people are quite happy to see people lose at the moment. But I think the key difference is, is around cricket. And we've looked at. We touched on in an interview with the the PCA, the Professional Cricketers Association. They seem to be more inclined to protect these players. Yeah, there's been a lot more help. You know, we, we touched on it before we started recording how different that the well-being uh, action facilities for these yeah. cricketers. I think that's 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 such a good point. Part. I think even from just like a just like a, a basic standpoint, if you Google PFA mental health and PCA mental health and just look at the two websites and you can see which one is investing more and which one cares more and understands it more. And that's not a dig at the PFA. That's purely just just take look at what they're doing. And they seem to be doing it a lot better. And it and often those things come down to right we you, you know, you might have painted your house nicer than the next door neighbour, but you're plumbing shit. But I don't think it is that. I think that you see it from the yeah. outside. We've talked about it with the, like with like Tramia in the or oh, if the seats, some of the seats are knackered and the, the paint needs doing and the flags are all torn. You think nobody cares about this. Why should I care about it? If you make the front of it look like someone cares and is interested in it, then it, it filters That's down to everything else, doesn't it? I want to ask you, Ant. We always touch about the best things in mental health and football in the community directly mm. but in cricket you don't normally have you don't always have that direct because often it's like county based it's quite a large area so how do you think they get the buy-in or why do you think they're successful and I don't even know if you know the answer to this question when they don't have that almost doorstep community of appeal to it um, I think the majority of the time when people are attracted to to county cricket it's because of the talent that's available. And I think Mark touched on it. Cricket fans don't watch it necessarily for the results and the losses and this and that and the tribalism. They watch it for the talent, so they appreciate mm. it more. So I think people buy into the, the counties a lot easier and it's a lot more further reach. You know, we look at a lot of people in England watch the Big Bash. There's no one really there. It's just really good entertainment. And it's also a, a game that's played amongst a lot of generations. Mm. So I think with football, you've got quite a, quite a small generation. Yeah, you're talking 10 years, aren't yeah, you? exactly. So I don't think there's as much experience. And I think the game, the way it's set up, and you, particularly with rugby as well, 
it's always been based on being playing in the right spirit and playing in the right way. And there's a thing called the, the spirit of cricket. And, you know, it's not something that's completely written down. It's not something that's completely normal and some people go against it. But I think it's always the foundations are always built. I don't think football's had that possibly because football's, uh, particularly with the game, is, is one where you can bend the rules. You can, you can, someone figured out that if you get in someone, the referee's here, you can get a decision out of yeah. it. Whereas in, in cricket, you can't do that. In rugby, you cannot do that because you'll get either sent off or... Do you think that comes from a, a, there's, in those sports, there's more respect put, like emphasis of respect put on the officials than there is in football? Um, yes. I, I know, I mean, I've certainly disrespected a couple of umpires in my time. <laughs> um, but you quickly told off and you quickly realised that they're standing there for, you know, for eight hours a day. Do you think part of that also well? might be from the fact that the type of um, demographics that the sports draw from? So if you think about it, if you've got a football referee, he's there on a Sunday morning in some moody park in Bootle, and he's just got 22 lads, most of which are hungover, just giving him pure grief. He's not going to turn around and go, you need to respect my decisions here. But if you're on a nice sunny field in Coldy and... There's silly leg off and what have you all scattered all, all these fellas. And as you say, the age range is different. Yeah, yeah, so you yeah. might have fellas in their 40s and you'll have lads who are like 16 and you haven't got quite that same kind of aggressive atmosphere that you well, might I get. I don't get there with. Officiating in cricket, obviously you use them cameras, don't you, to see how close the ball is and stuff. And yeah, in the professional game. Yeah, and then in rugby they use video technology quite well, microphones. And you can actually think you can hear the ref explaining his decision, yeah. which is a great thing. Football's invested in Hawkeye, which funnily enough let us down this week. It's invested in VAR, which is still contentious. We don't we, we seem to get in the personal elements of it wrong. Because the technology's there for it to work. Yeah, yeah. But like no one takes responsibility, so refs won't go over to screens for fear of they almost pass the book onto someone and stop the bar. Then when Hawkeye fails, they don't use common sense to go, well, let's just go and take a look at surely that's what VAR's there for in mm. the first place. If 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 we understood because I think most people are relatively reasonable in the fact that there's going to be mistakes made. But we don't allow for mistakes to make because no one takes responsibility. If referees just maybe said, this is my decision, these are my interpretation of the rules, here's why I made it, then you can kind of go, oh, I like them very much. Everyone just like, draws a line under it and goes, oh no, just an error. Do you think, think with, people up. Do you think with officiating in football that makes it so different from other sports is, is that... And, I'm happy to be to be proved wrong, but of the top sports, so the most high-profile sports in this country, so cricket, rugby, tennis, and football—they're probably the four. You say? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, more or yeah. less. Jill, somebody else tweet us telling us that bowls has eight we million did, people playing a week. They just have someone off the clock. He didn't. Yeah, but I mean, I mean <laughs> even even David himself, who we, yeah. we spoke to, did say that it's a, it's it's in this country, it's. A minor sport because yeah, yeah. he had to go abroad, didn't he, to play it professionally? So, yeah. um, do you think because in this country, football, I don't say in this country, I think football as a sport is so fluid, it doesn't stop much. Whereas all of those other sports that we've mentioned, rugby, cricket, and tennis, have natural stopping points all the time. Yeah. Uh, that's why a lot of people can't get into NFL. Yeah. Because it's so stopped off for whatever but they'll get like tape measures out of sex you know, yeah, yeah. and go yeah. this is exactly where the ball landed and if you're American and you've grown up watching it it's all you know yeah but for us in England we don't want like 
waiting for VAR decisions. But you looked at us earlier in the season at Watford before kickoff, we're singing for VAR. <laughs> and by the end of it, we were singing VAR. Yeah. VAR. Because <laughs> it, it works. So it's great when it works. Yeah. It's, but it, it's not consistent. But maybe that'll come the time. Do you know one thing I wanted to ask you, Ant? And this is part of the reason why we wanted to do to speak to Mark was about you obviously play cricket and have played football. In terms of the comparisons between the two on your well-being, so how it affects you in terms of confidence, how it affects you in terms of self-esteem, both positive and negative, what kind of differences have you found? That I think part of that needs to be caveated with, you'd probably say you're better at cricket than you are at football. You're a very good cricketer. You can play football, but you are a good cricketer. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think you're a very good cricketer. <laughs> Cricket's a lot harder, uh, mentally, I think. Um, I've tried to play cricket when I've struggled mentally, and it's absolutely... It's like walking through mud. Uh, Do you think that's because it's slower? It's more time to think? Yeah, absolutely. A lot more time to think. When you, when I found when I was playing football and I was struggling, it was really hard to get that aggressive, competitive nature. Yeah. And I think it's quite hard to get that if you're not as good as someone else in yeah. football. It's quite easy to tell that you're not as good as someone else. Did you like indirect competition? Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, self-esteem-wise, the first thing you notice in football is, is probably the shape of, of people. Yeah. Um, in cricket... Self-esteem wise comes from if you win seventeen yards to go and bowl the ball and it ends up back over your head for six, that's gonna take a bit of bit of a beating with something that he meant when you deliver something and it comes back with a different outcome that you weren't expecting, it's quite hard. And Mark talked about the the routines of, you know, that cricketers get into and the, the physical routines and how that builds their self-esteem, but it can work a little bit against him at times, yeah. it doesn't quite go their way. And you had that conversation with him, right? Yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting, yeah. interesting angle into it. Cricket's a, a test, and and you watch the Edge film. Yeah. Um, I've watched the Edge film, and, and that's what it is. That's why it's called test cricket. It's a test of everything you can do. It's five days mentally testing. It's physically testing. And when you then got someone who doesn't really like you or, or does like you and just wants to try and get you out by chatting to you, <laughs> and it becomes a little bit more difficult. And I think one of the most high-profile. Um, people in, in that film was Jonathan Trott. And Jonathan Trott was, if anyone doesn't know who's listening to this, was a, uh, an amazing cricketer for England. He scored thousands of runs, came in, had a really successful period and in the tour, I think, 13, 14 to Australia. Found himself in a, in a really bad place. I think he was crying in changing rooms. There was other people crying in changing rooms. It was the end of an era where England had dominated cricket and he had this bubble. But that bubble, I think it's shown really well. It started to create yeah. thunderstorms and, and, and lightning going on in this bubble that he had, whereas previously it had been this nice, peaceful, calm field. And well, they almost, I think in the edge, what's really interesting is that their whole ambition is to become the number one team in the world. And they achieved that probably quicker than they thought that they would achieve that for one reason or another. And then because of that, the pressure then ramps up because as soon as you become number one, you can't get any better. You can only get worse and you're constantly fighting against that, which is what I think... People got wait for you to get worse as well. Well, exactly. You're there to be knocked down, aren't you? We've seen it with Spain. We've seen it with Guardiola in football. You know, people going, these are boring. (laughs) I hated that ball and got to that ball. So the team is just near to perfect. 
Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And they were only boring because nobody was anywhere near yeah. the goal. Just when you just couldn't yeah. get the ball off them. Just on that, uh, what you were saying before, and about uh, mental toughness in, in cricket. Do you think, on the other hand, more than football, maybe other sports, you get the opportunity for redemption quicker? So maybe not so much for a batsman, it might vary different positions, but if you're a bowler, you're having an off day. You might be coming back the next day, or you might just, in the next overs or whatever it is, have the chance to get them out. So do you think that's the healthy aspect of cricket where it's like, all right, I've, I've, I've lost my head a bit. Where in football, you lose a Champions League final, you might never get to one again. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think the Carriers, for example, he'll never, ever live that down. If he could play another final the next day and get it out of his system. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah it's it's more like that. binary, isn't it, I suppose? Because yeah. there's, there's, there's less opportunity for chaos, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because in like football, it's like if you're a centre forward. Speaking of football, we might get ringed off here. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the clouds are rolling in, aren't they? Uh, in football, if you miss a chance as a centre forward or make a mistake as a, as a defender because of the chaotic nature of football, that scenario might not present itself again. That's, yeah, that's the what game. I'm saying. Whereas that's, that's the tough element of football. Mm. I think like Chris and William, sorry to keep bringing him up, but he never got that opportunity yeah. really to redeem it. Part of that would be because how would you redeem that? Because it was a qualifier. It was a big game, but Scotland aren't often in those positions. Yeah. Just by the nature of every few years anyway. Whereas in cricket, England, they're always going to be in the World Cup, aren't they? Yeah. And then, just so we can wrap this up a little bit, just want to ask you, what do you think that football can take away from cricket? What would you like to see them do? I know we've football started giving the Heads Up campaign, which has a, you know, the Prince of Wales uh, involved and and yeah, yeah. For me, and just quickly on that, it's simply, very simply, to just don't care more. Cricket cares, and that's where it starts. If you don't care, you would have nothing about it. Yeah, I don't think I can put any more succinctly than that. I think one thing that Mark touched on in the in the interview itself was he talked about the way it's stigma, and he didn't like the way it's stigma because it's like a self fulfilling prophecy. And I feel like in cricket, it feels like more of an environment that's open for that conversation than it is in football. Right, so that's enough from us today. Uh, we hope you had fun listening to the show. Um, if you want to give us a, a like and a subscribe on, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, give us a little follow on um, Twitter as well, at marking underscore man. Use the hashtag, where's the talking lads? I mean, obviously, we'll have Mike Kinsella on the show a week today, which uh, 100% you should listen to. <laughs> <laughs> and when you, do, yeah, when you do listen to that, you'll get that joke as well. Um, that's everything from us. Stay safe, wash your hands, and enjoy enjoy your time. Fantastic. Quite simply, why is cricket so boring? <laughs> well, well, I'm actually really offended now, so I'm going to go. Um, <laughs> I think the reason why people find it boring is, like, I think it's a theme of discussed, isn't it? It's the time element to it. Um, there's definitely that. And I think it's peculiar as a sport. Everyone's dressed up in white. We go off halfway through. Um, there's all the paraphernalia. Uh, so, yeah, I can see why people might consider it boring because of because of that. I would say to anyone, you watch the World Cup final from last year in New Zealand and no one can tell me that's boring. Um, I think we've just preempted the answer to this, but most memorable sporting moment for you, Mark? Oh, yeah, well, that would be up there, definitely. Um, I'd also say 
2005 Ashes when England won uh, Edge Baston really late on in the in the innings. It was it was very dramatic. Uh, so there was a diving catch down the leg side that Geraint Jones took. Um, but if I think of a, I think of football, um, even some daft ones. In my time of, of at Highfield Road with Coventry City. There used to be some cracking games where um, I remember one, they came from behind for the first time in about a decade. And um, I remember losing my watch in the in the stand because somehow it came off my arm uh, and everyone was just jumping up and down. So some of the less significant ones are almost the most memorable ones in that sense. That was home against Norwich City, I mean, 2002, 2003, something like that. Still remember it, despite it being a pretty inconsequential game of football. The Darren Huckabee Derby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mark, if you had a chance, would you have wanted to play cricket professionally? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, what, I, I've got to a point in my life where I'm not really one for regrets. You know, I could regret. I, I'd love it if I'd been good at cricket. I'd love <laughs> it career. Um, but... There we go. I'm doomed just to be uh, half crap, or more than half, um, and just maybe be involved with it from another perspective. But the answer is yes, 100%. Mark, what's the worst tea you've ever had, and what's the best tea you've ever had? The worst tea I've ever had, I'm not going to name the club, it was uh, ham sandwiches, cheese sandwiches, and Jaffa cakes. That was it. Um, ruined my day. Ruined, <laughs> ruined the season, really. The best I've ever had... Oh, this is going back a long time. A club in Warwickshire, um, they had a really they had a ground, and then you went to the local pub for the tea, and it was just heaven. There was everything: hot stuff, cold stuff, salads, a range of desserts, drinks, the whole bit. So that was Braunston Packs, a tiny place, border between Warwickshire and Northamptonshire. Two thousand and two, that was. So I'm getting the archives out here um, for a tea. For me, I'm not uh, sophisticated. I just want volume, yeah, uh, yeah. and I'll be happy. Yeah. If we've managed to um, gain any new cricket fans following us, um, Mark, we may lose them after this question, but can a sport <laughs> really be considered a sport when you stop for crumpets partway through? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I've often looked at what is a sport. You know, we have that debate about things. And I remember a friend saying once, it's a sport if you have to change your shoes to do it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. Mark, do you know what wood a cricket bat is made from? I, I do, yeah. Uh, it's it's willow. I think I'm being set up for something here. No, I, we, were, we were just testing the knowledge. It was on a quiz we did last night. <laughs> and they yeah, were oh, yeah, right, I, okay. I didn't have a clue. I, I think I wrote beach. Is that even a no, word? It's, it's, it's willow, and you'd either have English willow or cashmere willow. Ah. You didn't bring that knowledge to the table, Ant. I, I, <laughs> I didn't think you could handle it, to be honest. No, it would have blown my head off, mate. <laughs> Mark, what's been your best moment or most rewarding moment working with Open Up Cricket? Oh, I, don't, I don't know about a moment, but what I find most rewarding in general, so I suppose this could be a set of moments, is having done a, done a session or talk with a group of players and then outside of the maybe like the formality of delivering a session as it were just chatting with cricketers about mental health whichever angle they want to come at it from 
And then realising what I set out to do, which was to get people to talk about mental health through the sport. So anytime I get a chance to have a cup of tea or whatever after we've spoken and just chat about it, that for me is what makes it worthwhile. Uh, Mark, are you a batsman or a bowler? Uh, great question. Um, I used to bat. I used to be a batter when I was when I first started off as a, as a kid. Now I I bowl sort of apologetically bowled. Um, I like batting more than bowling, but unfortunately my body is slightly better at bowling, uh, although it's not much of a contest. So, yeah, I'd probably one of these cop-outs who'd say a bit of an all-rounder. So, do you know your batting average off by heart? Uh, I do, but I'm not going to reveal that. <laughs> have you ever used it to impress anyone? Oh, absolutely not. No, I might have lied about it. I might have pretended I was someone else, but never my own stats, no. <laughs> I think I've done that as well. Did you double yours to four, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> Don't even know if that's funny or not. That is funny. Four's a very small number. <laughs> this Fantastic. is the moment. It's Archer to Gupto. Two to win. Gupto's going to push for two. They've got to go. It's gone through. It's got to go to the keeper's end. He's got it. England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. By the barest of all margins. Absolute ecstasy for England. Agony. Agony for New Zealand. Wow. It's all yours, Nessa. It's your cup. Unbelievable. You've got to feel for New Zealand. Look at them. You just cannot believe it, but England have deserved it. It came down to one bit of fielding after seven weeks. Could he get back for two? Could the throw come in? It did. Could Butler get it back to the stumps on time? New Zealand might have lost the, the game, but cricket has definitely been the winner here this evening. ICC World Cup champions. 2019, for the first time, England!